Hello, rhetorical listeners. Welcome in to another episode of The Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods, and man, do we have an exciting conversation today with Cody Jackson from Texas Christian University. He's a PhD student there. More on Cody in a moment, but first, I want to share with you all a CFP that I found for the Sound Studies Rhetoric and Writing Conference that's going to be held in Detroit, Michigan, October 1st through 3rd of 2020. This conference sounds really cool. All right, sounds, I get it, pun not intended. This conference aims to provide an interdisciplinary contact zone for scholars in sound studies, rhetoric studies, and writing studies to explore and perform creative works and research made with, in, of, and from sound. Hang on. My dog has decided to join me for this recording. Hey, buddy. All right. Hang on. Okay. So, back to the CFP. Stan just needed a little bit of love for the Sound Studies Rhetoric and Writing Conference. Uh, they invite a wide range of proposals that take up expansive conceptions of sound studies, rhetoric, and writing, and are especially interested in proposals that explore notions of sound and place. Okay, so I, as a scholar, not necessarily as a podcast host, but as a scholar, I'm super interested in this CFP. They have a specific section devoted to installations, sound installations, and I think that sounds extremely intriguing. So, this CFP, again, is for Sound Studies Rhetoric and Writing Conference 2020. I'm going to keep up with this CFP and this conference, and I'm going to propose. If you see an intersection between the work that this conference proposal is doing and the work we're doing on the Big Rhetorical Podcast, reach out. Hey, it's always a great day to collaborate, right? So keep in touch with us. Keep up with this conference. And uh, maybe we'll see you in Detroit in 2020. I love Detroit. We were there a couple years ago for um, another conference uh, in digital humanities. Cody Jackson is on the podcast this week. Man, you guys are in for a treat. This guy holds no punches. All right. We had to take a break for a cigarette. We were just ripping conferences apart for not being accessible. Oh, my gosh. What a conversation. Cody is uh, currently a second-year Ph.D. student in rhetoric composition down there at TCU, down at Texas Christian University. His research and pedagogy are focused on the intersections between queerness, disability, and archival praxis. Cody explores the material implications and influences of anti-ableist composition, theories of time and composing, and queer composition studies. Cody is currently working on a larger project that addresses the ways that material conditions of graduate students and contingent faculty Impact larger circulations of knowledge and disciplinarity. And let me just say, the work that Cody is doing on the ground there at TCU is so important. The work he's doing with graduate students, 
labor, wages, etc. Man, this is the kind of guy you want to grab a beer with. I hope to do that uh, when I meet him one day out and about at a conference. But until then, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Cody Jackson. Where in Arkansas are you from? I'm from, well... I'm from Swifton, Arkansas, so it's it's northeast Arkansas. Um, it's near Jonesboro, where Arkansas State University is, but Swifton okay. has 800 people, so hardly anyone knows where that is. <laughs> I've never heard of it, but I also don't know. Well, I think I have been to Arkansas, actually, but alas, you went to Arkansas State. And what city is Arkansas State in? Jonesboro. Jonesboro, okay, and so you went to to Arkansas State in Jonesboro for your undergraduate degree, right? Yes. And you got a bachelor's, was it a bachelor's of science in yeah. education? Yeah, it's a bachelor of science in education, and the, the, the major focus was English, obviously. Interesting. How did you, how, how was your time there in, um, in Jonesboro? Um, it was interesting, and I, I, I liked it because it was close to home. Um, it was, and he is very conservative, um, which, you know, isn't everybody's cup of tea. But um, my time at ASU was was pretty good. Um, I think one of the turning points for me at ASU was taking a class with Jason Barrett Fox, um, who's now the WPA at uh, Weber State University, I believe. Um, but he was my mentor at ASU. Um, and kind of really got me interested in the possibility of graduate education. Um, what class was it that you took with him? Yeah, so he, he taught two classes, well, two classes that I took. Um, the first was um, advanced composition, and the second was persuasive writing. Hmm. Uh, so he had us reading uh, Judith Butler, uh, Kenneth Burke, um, Michelle Foucault, and, the, you know, we were undergrads. And I was loving it. Um, first time reading that type of stuff. Um, so it was very interesting. Only had a few uh, minor breakdowns, but it was pretty good. <laughs> I really, uh, really connected to what you're saying about growing up in a conservative place. Uh, maybe not having the same or uh Feelings or aligning, conforming to that ideology or whatever. I'm from rural Alabama. While my right, so while my my hometown had had much many more than 800, um, I'm from the suburbs of Birmingham. Um, I still felt it pretty much every day. Oh yeah, yeah. (laughs) and 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 continually on my Facebook page. (laughs) Yeah, I had to. I had to do a kind of a filter um, when I got my new Facebook page. I had to make sure I didn't add the same people again. Yeah. <laughs> so you're the, say again. It's, it's it's a form of self care. Yeah, it really is though. Self-care. I mean, yeah. so you're there in Jonesboro. You're living up uh, Judith Butler and Kenneth Burke and taking it all in. And then you make um, the move west, I guess, to Texas for your yeah. master's program. 
Texas Women's University. And yeah. I happen to know where that's at because I spoke to someone who mentioned it was in Denton, Texas. Mm-hmm. So you're in Jonesboro for a bit. Now you're in Denton, Texas. How are those two cities to live in? How are they comparable? Comparative. Uh, I would say that they're relatively similar um, in terms of, you know, ASU is a, is a relatively, you know, mid-sized university. Um, Didn't, I would say, is more of a, depending on where you're at, has some kind of more progressive um, bubbles. But there's still a, a large conservative um, kind of contingency there um, here uh, in Fort Worth, too. But... I would say that the kind of the culture is a, a little different in terms of um, what there is to do. Um, you know, in Jonesboro, the the kind of the typical things were, you know, going to eat or, you know, the movie theater and not a lot of museums, you know, not a lot of art galleries. Um, you know, Denton has a few museums uh, and a really badass bookstore, um, mm-hmm. Recycled Books um downtown and that's one of my favorite places there yeah very cool what's the name of that bookstore again uh recycled books okay very cool old opera house too oh yeah yeah that's really interesting i oftentimes i think that this is not even something this is so it's not even something to say but most of the time the space makes the bookstore so Mm -hmm. hearing that it's in an opera house is cool and it's a it's it kind of makes you your allergies go a little wild. It, it's obvious they haven't cleaned in a long time. <laughs> and Even better. Yeah, it's kind of shade, but it's also, you know, they have some really really cool books. So sometimes it's worth it. Yeah. How far is Denton? So from Jonesboro, and I'm asking because you you mentioned that your hometown uh, in Arkansas is relatively close to Jonesboro. So, yeah. So you made a pretty big move. From the family, I guess, and from home to move to Denton, and that was a, a pretty big big deal, I, I guess. Yeah, so it's, it, yeah, um, and it's something that I'm still kind of working through, um, but I should say I moved to Denton um, to go to TWU with, uh, who is still my best friend, Justin Cook, um, mm. and the PhD candidate uh, in rhetoric at Texas Women's University. Uh. So we were roommates um, throughout that time, and then I made the move to TCU. Uh, so I was oh. on my own, and I'm still not because I usually go back to Denton, you know, every weekend or every other weekend. Uh, cool. Um, so what was your master's thesis project there at Texas Women's University? Yeah, so it's actually very interesting. Oh, uh, good. So... My master's thesis was a mess. Uh, <laughs> it started off saying it was a mess. However, um, so basically it, it was taking a look at um, kind of the political and the material um, kind of contours of water. So I was taking a look at how water is mobilized um, materially and politically. Um, and so I, I was taking a look at, um, some archives from, um, 
early 20th century uh, environmental um, activists. Uh, Rachel Carson was kind of the focus of the first chapter. Um, and so Rachel Carson is largely credited um, with kind of spurring the um, the movement for the EPA. Oh, okay. Um, and so at the time when she was alive, she was constantly bombarded by corporations, um, um, specifically like corporate um, sponsors of like DDT and other pesticides that she was saying, hey, this is harmful. Um, and so they constantly were trying to silence her while she was alive. And she actually died um, from breast cancer. Uh, oh, wow. So it's, it's, it was a very kind of material moment um, that I think still deserves a lot more attention. Um, although my kind of research has since shifted, um, a lot of my thesis was grounded in new materialism. Um, although I did have a try to do a chapter, you know, basically the thesis was a kind of self-reflexive moment for me to kind of learn. And so... It's a mess, but I think the the method comes through in the messiness. And it's it if if someone were to pick it up, it would be obvious that you know whoever was writing it, me, you know whoever was writing it was trying to unlearn and learn some shit. So, (laughs) well, you know, I think that's what they're supposed to be. Even dissertations, right? They're they're a a launch pad, not 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 a not the end product, right? Of 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 your research career and your So I I find your work with with water interesting, as you noted, very interesting. Um, What led you there? How did you get there to wanting to work with with water and new materialism? Yeah, so it's it kind of went back to um, so I graduated high school and I I lived there for a long time. So Jackson County is is where I'm from. And so it's and that's in Arkansas. Yeah. So Swifton is to the north. And so. I moved around a lot. Um, so I was born in Newport, which is the county seat, um, graduated high school uh, in Tuckerman. Uh, and then my family still lives in Swifton. But the point being that Tuckerman's water supply um, has historically been awful. Um, and so when I think when I was a senior in high school, I posted a, a picture of the water um, in a tub and it went viral. Um, and at some point, Aaron Brockovich got a hold of it, uh, and made contact with the city of Tuckerman. Um, I still don't know what happened with that contact. I think they got frustrated at me. Um, but just recently they, they made some significant improvements in the water supply, um, still have high water bills. And so there are a lot of people back home still mad. Um, but that's kind of the personal stakes that kind of led me to looking more into the kind of political aspects of, of water, because I think especially in rural and local communities. Um, and then obviously, as we see in, in, in places like Flint and Newark, uh, New Jersey, um, places all over the country uh, with lead in their water pipes or lead pipes. So it's also racialized, um, which is something that I, I try to talk about in, a, in my second chapter not very proud of that chapter. I think it's a little, it's not doing the work it needs to do, but it did kind of lead me to, to doing, making moves that I think are, are pretty, pretty um, useful. I think. 
I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about your master's thesis, but <laughs> as you're talking, I'm making notes, and and we may have to do a a, a two a two episode podcast with Cody uh, if I keep him here all afternoon. I do want to ask a couple of questions. Uh, the first yeah. thing is about localizing your research and taking it back home to Arkansas and working with your population, the people that you know and, and where you grew up and, and their water supply. What? How did? Was that a conscious decision? Was that a decision that you made from the onset where you led to that decision? And how important is localization in our research to you? Um, well, so the... The kind of the, the water, the local water issues that were taking place, still taking place in Tuckerman, that was something that I was working on during my undergrad. And actually, uh, right after high school, I was and it, I didn't do a ton of work. Less, but it was mainly online uh, networking, mm. which is still work, but it's it, it's it was a different kind of work. Well, you but got I, your you got your image to go viral. That, that yeah. I mean, that, that's and, work. I, what do you mean when you say viral? Like, give us a give us an idea. I don't it, know. I think it got shared 13,000 times. Oh, that's viral. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. So it, yeah, it was viral. And um, so that was, it was interesting to say the least. Yeah. Um, but I also think that I ran for, um, we call them justices of the peace. So there, on, on the county level, it's very similar to a city council. Uh, and I ran for a, a seat on that loss, but I ran for it. And one of the key kind of pillars of, that race was the local kind of water politics. So Okay, so that's fascinating work in terms of the water politics, but you mentioned that you also were um, running a, in an election? Yes. And so was that just like in between your master's degree and PhD and you lost and you're like, well, I guess I'll go for the PhD now? Or it, how did, it, how actually, did that work? It was in between. It was actually I was I was a senior in undergrad. Okay. And so I ran for that and 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 lost. And then I made the move to my master's at TWU. So it was it's half of it wasn't really conscious. Half of it was just like okay, I'm just going to kind of go somewhere that looks interesting. Um, the other part. So the, to answer your second kind of question, I think localization is almost everything, but we can't lose sight of the kind of the ways that locales are connected. But I think I think so often our research gets muddied in language of the structural. And so a lot of times we, we lose sight of the local kind of work that we can be doing to address structural issues. So that's something that I, I try to work on. You mentioned that recently um, the community had even though they still have high water bills, right? They had undergone some changes towards getting some of these uh, issues fixed. Is that a, in a response to the work that you did or have been doing for the last few years? Yeah, so perhaps it wasn't a direct response. I would say it was. It's more of a response to the community because it was. It, it was probably it was happening for years and years. I don't remember a time when the water wasn't bad. But I do know that it's something that the community as a whole, particularly uh, her name is Jan Pascal, um, and she's the director of an organization called Every Child is Ours. Her work has been vital on that on that front. 
Very interesting. Thanks for sharing. That was uh, all of that information. I really do appreciate that. Uh, sure. Fascinating work. So you're there. Uh, you've worked with water and new materialism in Denton. You're moving now to Fort Worth. Did you go directly through from your master's to your Ph.D.? Yes, yes. And you moved to Fort Worth to TCU, Texas Christian University. What uh, what led you to TCU? So while I was at TWU, I led some efforts uh, with my friend and colleague, Justin Cook. Uh, mm-hmm. We kind of led some efforts along with some other colleagues for living wages there. Because they, you know, and I'm comfortable saying that they still don't pay a living wage. Oh, uh, well. But they do guarantee summer funding to rhetoric PhD students, which I think is important. So there, it's a, yeah. kind of, you know, there, there are good and, and pros and cons, obviously, to every place. But a big reason why I moved to TCU was it was still close to Denton. So I would still have, you know, proximity to some friends there, particularly Justin um, and some other friends and colleagues. Uh, but it was also a program that I knew had a um, kind of a, a historical tradition, mm. um, kind of an established sense of, of kind of, I don't want to say notoriety or even prestige, because um, I don't like the, how those have been mobilized, but. It's something it's a program that had an established presence in the field and they have health insurance. It's not great. I wouldn't even say it's good, but it's health insurance. Right. Uh, and it, it does cover a good portion of my prescription. So that's a, another big reason why I came here. Accessibility is everything. And I think that, you know, I think we've got to. Something that I'm, I'm really trying to articulate in, in some of my overarching projects mm-hmm. is taking a look at how material conditions of not only graduate students, um, but contingent faculty and you, one could say like even junior faculty. Um, so I don't want to pretend that junior faculty don't experience these things because right. they, do. but I really want to start encouraging more work that looks at how our material conditions impact the circulation of knowledge in our discipline, because it's just, it's, it's, it's when people are trying to survive uh, and barely surviving, you know, of course they're not going to be able able to publish, you know, the work that they're working on. Um, And that's not just me. It's happening across the country. We've got a lot of people doing great work in our field, but survival takes precedent. And it has a deep and rooted impact in how knowledge is formed and how our field progresses. And I think more attention needs to be on those material conditions, but also locating the causes and fixing them at the local level. When you're when you're referring to to material conditions, you're referring to living wages, you're referring to health insurance, things like that. And then. What also is the connection between this and mental health for graduate students? Yeah, so I think I think the conversations around mental health uh, in graduate school are important. And so I don't want to discount. First, I don't want to discount those conversations taking place. And I don't want to uh, discount how hard it is to to say, um, you know, to other people that we are struggling uh, right. with health. Um, but I, I also want to recognize that we've done little more than talk about it. 
you know, disabled and mentally ill people have been talking about this for years. They've given uh, possible solutions. They've, and I should start saying we, you know, we've been, you know, discussing the importance of mental health. It's just that institutions don't listen, Mm -hmm. but they, but it's not that they don't listen. It's that institutions aren't self-reflexive. Why that pronoun change in the way that you were talking? So I think, and so a lot of work, I would encourage anyone to read um, Stephanie Kirschbaum's essay and rhetoric review on disclosure. And so, so the pivot from they to we is actually, it's something that is very, it's a, it's a queer moment. I'll, I'll go ahead and say it's a pretty queer moment because it's kind of representative of the the moves that disability and disabled scholars particularly are making right now. We're seeing a pushback. Uh, and what I mean by that is disabled people uh, and autistic people are starting to speak for ourselves. Whereas historically we have been objects of analysis, you know, merely kind of talked about. And so now we're, we're really, getting to a point in our field specifically where disabled and autistic people, you know, and that crosses a lot of intersections are talking back to the discipline and starting to reshape the discourse. Um, and I think, I think as we kind of progress, uh, I'm pretty comfortable saying that Melanie argues authoring autism signals a tremendous paradigm shift in our field. Yeah. In what I, way? I think that book, and, and so going back to her article with Paul Helker, may have mispronounced his name, in uh, the Siege Journal, or no, College English, um, on autism right. and rhetoric. Those two texts, uh, for me, and when I say paradigm shift, I want to recognize that I don't like that term, but it's, it's the best one I have right now. Um, it really is a moment where we're seeing autisticness or autistic embodiment come to the fore. And so I think when I say paradigm shift, it's, it reminds me, it's not the same thing, but it does remind me of uh, kind of the opening sentence in Fred Moten's In the Break. And so it's almost as if we're getting to a point where quote unquote objects are, are talking back. And I think that's the paradigm shift. And I also think that that's uh, very comparable um, to we're seeing in cultural rhetorics right now too knowing you a bit and knowing that accessibility is you said accessibility is everything like it's the keystone the cornerstone all of that to your research to your study so i wonder in what ways does that permeate in your life um professionally and then also personally and do you compartmentalize these things? Is it something you take home? Is it something that you're always thinking about and looking at? I know that question might sound a bit cliche there at the end, so I'll let you run with it. Yeah, so it's something that it never it it's something that can never be turned off. Uh-huh. Um, and it's not. And so I'll give some examples, but I want to be mindful to to say that this happens everywhere, that most or if not all college campuses are woefully inaccessible. So 
but it's something that I do kind of face quite a bit, like on a day to day basis. And I think, you know, particularly in terms of when we think about the, our workspaces, for instance, you know, you know, can I find a quiet workspace? You know, even kind of walking to the academic building um, and, you know, crossing six or seven uh, intersections with busy cars and, and pedestrians and bicycles and scooters. It's, it's a kind of, it's kind of an excess in everyday life. Um, is how I would classify it. And it, and it really bleeds into my professional work because I can't turn that sensory mess off. And so it, it, it bleeds into the discursive spaces that I, I try to work in, you know, so, it's definitely, you know, when when disabled scholars run into inaccessible spaces, it's something that doesn't end with the body. It's something mm-hmm. that has a really deep and rooted impact on our scholarship. And it's certainly that's certainly true for me. And I would say it's true for most, if not all, disabled um, retcomp scholars um, in one way or another. It sounds like your approach, really your methods are all about tackling systemic issues that is got to be grueling and 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 so i wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on 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 how and why etc yeah so the way i look at it in terms of tackling systemic problems and and i'm glad you brought it up i think that oftentimes and when i say we i I mean literally everyone um, right I think when we say systemic, we oftentimes, myself included, forget that they have very material and tangible effects on our bodies. Okay. Um, so some of the work that I've, I've done, and so the um, the little brief chapter uh, that I co-authored uh, in the upcoming design thinking um, collection uh, uh-huh. that Jason that Jason's editing gets at this a little bit. Um, so one of the kind of terms that, well, two terms that I use in that short little essay is design questioning as opposed to design thinking. Um, and they're not directly opposed. They're very much interrelated. Uh, but design questioning uh, is a term that comes from um, disability activist uh, Liz Jackson, Um and so she takes design thinking uh, and questions some of the, the white abled um, kind of lineages of that term um, and kind of turns it on its head. And so for me, uh, as a way to push back against some of these systemic issues is to constantly question them, um, to, to not necessarily have solutions, but to question uh, what the problems are. Uh, and so the second thing um, that I talk about in that brief little piece um, is what um, Ashton Crowley um, wrote a piece called Ghosts uh, for the New Inquiry. Uh, and, and Ashton Crowley is the author of uh, Black Pentecostal Breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks about in that essay um, anti-institutional relationality. And it sounds really fancy, but I think it's very important in terms of accessibility. 
um, and also tackling systemic issues within the discipline, uh, but also at the level of the university. Um, and so what I personally see as a form of anti-institutional relation is not necessarily constantly combating our institutions, but seeing the value of the living and moving bodies that we are taking up space with uh, and valuing our relations over the institution. Uh, so in what ways can we navigate institutions that doesn't just benefit or that doesn't benefit the institution? How can the institution sustain us? Um, how can universities sustain us and our bodies? Because we have always sustained the structures of the university. Um, so it's, it's flipping that kind of top down managerial aspect and it's taking it into a direction I think is more localized. Um, so it obviously takes into consideration local context. I'm at a private university. Um, it's a very new shift for me. Um, uh -huh. I'm used to, I'm used to being able to look at budgets. Um, and being able to see where money is and where money's going. And that's completely different at a private university. And so right. that's, that's a difference. You mentioned that you had an upcoming um, entry in um, Jason Tom's uh, edition, Keywords and, and Concepts in Making and Design Thinking. Um, what is that project, and how did you get involved with that? Um, so it was happenstance, really. Jason... <laughs> uh, I tweeted tweeted a link and was like, "Hey, if you're interested, um, sign up." And so I signed up with with Justin, um, and it kind of took off from there. Um, that's how I got involved, literally. But I also really wanted to talk about accessibility um, in terms of design because I don't think. If you see, you know, on Twitter or any form of social media, there's constantly, you know, new innovative technologies that we're seeing that are supposedly meant to help disabled people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for instance, there the other day there was this kind of, it was almost like a monster truck wheelchair that is oh, wow. that's supposed to hug stairs uh -huh. to climb stairs. And so making sure that design thinking actually centers and foregrounds disabled bodies. Um, so whereas, yeah, it's cool to have a monster truck wheelchair, but why don't we have to, why don't we just have ramps? You know, why aren't we doing things that universally kind of guarantees access to our spaces? And I think that's the physicality of the design aspect makes sense to me as a person who is able-bodied to build the ramp instead of selling the wheelchair. Absolutely. Yeah, and oftentimes the wheelchairs are, are very expensive, uh, and it's not just for wheelchairs. It's a lot of different kind of gadgety things, but sure. oftentimes very expensive. Um, so yeah. the, they're cost prohibitive, uh, but they're also, they fall into that neoliberal kind of scheme of, of placing the onus on the individual. Uh, and that is what I'm working against. Very interesting. Um, I know from following Jason on Twitter that that project has like something like a hundred contributors. And 
We're Col- both contributors yes. to that collection, but it's a super exciting collection. I'm I'm hoping that it gets uh gets to be put out soon. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's it's going to be it's going to be a very very good um kind of diverse piece of work, I think. For sure. Um so I know that you have just from talking to you and knowing a bit about you that you kind of work at the intersection of your scholarship, your research as a rhetoric scholar and disability studies and also public pedagogy or public scholarship. Recently you published Loving Jim, Jim Wheeler and the Matter of Queer Archives. And that was just uh, last month in August. I want to give you the opportunity to talk as much as you want to about your public scholarship, but I thought that perhaps this would be a place to start to talk about this project. Yeah. So, so my research is, is very, um, all over the place. Um, and I think, but I'm very conscious. Um, it, it it can take on the, the kind of look and feel of someone who's just kind of all over the place and, uh, but it's a very conscious navigation um, between queerness, disability, um, and and access. Um, so that project was something that um, I started that my junior year of uh, undergrad at Arkansas State. Um, and so that has been an ongoing queer archives project, uh, which is a, a large part of my research is is queer archive work. So I'll, I'll go ahead and say that I ran across uh, Jim's poem, which is now called Jim and Bold, but he didn't call it that when he was alive. But that was the first piece that I ran across. Um, and so the, the piece that I published on Medium is kind of just a way for me to share a piece of the, the curation because I, I curated an edited collection of his work. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's unpublished, but it's a it's an edited collection of Jim's poems and, and artwork. And that project was something that I did uh, in conjunction with his family. Who who could you talk a little bit more about who he was? Yeah. So Jim Wheeler was a poet, uh, you know, a writer. He was from a small rural town in Pennsylvania, I think Lancaster. It's it's in the 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 article, um, but I, I'm in between Lebanon and Lancaster because I think those two are very close, but I might be wrong. Um, but nonetheless, a very small town uh, or a relatively small town in Pennsylvania. Jim uh, died by suicide uh, in 1997 after tons of bullying uh, and 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 anti-gay uh, violence, uh, physical and emotional and mental violence, and so. What I was trying to do and what I'm still working on, really, is a way for us to theorize queer archive work. And there are there are tons of people who are doing this work. Uh, Jamie Lee, for instance, uh, is doing this work. There are several uh, people, um, many people doing work on the intersections of materiality and queer archives. Jamie Lee is someone whose scholarship I, I use quite a bit. Um, but there are plenty of other people. So... I'm looking at how that should influence our our curatorial kind of practices. And so in terms of publication or publishing, 
I'm working on a, a, an article, quote unquote article, uh, for the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics uh, that will actually be a series of zines. And one oh, of those, cool. yeah, and so one of those zines is actually going to be kind of literally that medium post transformed into a zine. And so what I'm trying to do is have a public facing kind of side of my work, but also keep keep in mind the scholarly audience and trying to maintain a public facing uh, kind of workspace that's accessible. Um, but also, you know, not trying to avoid scholarly language for the sake of, of, you know, plain language. I think that's a conversation to be had another day, but I think a lot of the discourse around plain language is, is, uh, not contextualized. I think we, we don't give the public enough credit in terms of approaching our work. I think if we give public, uh, spaces and public discourse, the tools alongside our work, there would be less uh, lost in translation. I was looking at your article, and Jimmy Wheeler is from Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Okay, Lebanon. Yes, you were right. I think it was. Le- I think he may have graduated uh, from Lancaster High School, or Lancaster is. I don't know why that's in my mind. Um, I feel like it's a county in Pennsylvania. I really do. That Lebanon is in, um, uh, which explains a lot of. <laughs> Probably not the most important part of Jimmy's story, but definitely worth getting correct. Absolutely. I know that you are also very interested in activism and thinking about labor and labor and the way that labor is perceived and conceived, I guess, both in the field, right, and in the discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I don't want to, I, I kind of do actually, I'll leave this part. I want to broad stroke that, which means I want to know how, what you mean when you're talking about labor and the issues that you take with it and, and how it's impacting the work you're doing at, 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 down in Fort Worth. So right now, um, so I'll approach that two ways. The, the first okay. way is kind of through a more theoretical framework, but the second way is, is through some concrete things that I'm, I've been working on. Okay. Um, so the first thing is, is I want to ask, and I, and I think we're seeing more people ask this question, um, but how can dis, how can disability uh, inform labor justice? And so okay. what I'm working toward is a framework for disability labor justice within mm-hmm our field. Um, And so that means taking a look at different aspects of disability research uh, as a form of activism. Uh, And so when we think about labor, um, it's not merely um, a matter of, you know, pay. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, obviously we need more money. And I think that I think I think that's for every uh, you know graduate student and contingent worker. Um, but one thing that I'm kind of thinking about uh, in terms of this issue of labor is the history of disability in our field, because and I'm comfortable saying this, but the history of rhetoric and composition is is littered uh, with bodies of disabled people who were either excluded or actively 
expel from our discipline. And that's in what ways? And in both structural. Okay. So in terms of, so if we look at just, so I'll I'll use my program as an example, but it's it's really okay. it's not a um it's not an indictment as much as it's a part of a larger pattern. So a lot of people talked about um, the kind of the ways that that graduate education has been structured. So we've got the nine month system. Uh, we've got usually summers off. And I'm using right. quotations there. I want to put that in the, the audience. Yes. Um, no, no one gets summers off, uh, regardless. But thinking about, uh, so a lot of disability activists and scholars talk a lot about crip time. Um, and so in a nutshell, um, crip time um, is a way of thinking about temporality through disability. Right. Uh, and so when I say that the history of our field has um, actively expelled disabled people, it's it's a it's a matter of how our local uh, curricula uh, and local patterns of structuring our programs are just built to exclude folks. So I'll I'll, I'll kind of give two examples. So the first okay. example of that is the physical structure of the university. There are constant accessibility issues physically on university campuses. Um, you know, TCU, for example, every building has a massive staircase leading up to it. Um, and there will be a sign that says accessible entrance and it points you around. It's almost always at the back of the building. Right. Um, and Jay Dolmage talked a lot about this in Academic Ableism, uh, his book from University of Michigan Press. So there's the physical aspect of accessibility, but one thing that we really haven't made a shift for, and one thing that I'm, I'm trying to pivot toward, um, is applying some of the really, um, it's not just interesting, I think it's vital. So we've got some research coming up um, on crib time and um, disability and higher education and rec comp. So we've got um, work by Tara Wood. Um, we've got work by Ellen Samuels, um, Allison Kafer, um, Sammy Shock, um, Christina Cedillo, um, Stephanie Kirschbaum, and a lot of other folks who are taking a look at how bodies move through time and space. And so what I'm really looking at is how the structures of our programs are built for able-bodied, able-minded people in terms of the fast pace. So, you know, the publication pipeline is definitely something that's accelerated. Um, But it it really, when I say accessibility is everything, it it really is top down. Um, It's it's from the micro level of everyday interaction. but it's also the macro in terms of thinking about stuff like time to degree. You know, I'm very fortunate, uh, and I'll, I'm going to say this on the record because TCU has done an incredible job. Um, and I'll say the TCU College of Liberal Arts, uh-huh. uh, TCU itself, not, but the TCU College of Liberal Arts and the TCU Department of English has done uh-huh. an incredible job in terms of working with me on some accessibility 
things. And so I'll kind of outline that kind of stuff because I think it's a, it's a, it's key because when stuff like this doesn't happen is when a lot of disabled folks, not everyone, but a lot of disabled folks tend to get expelled. And so something that I've run into is the, the time to degree and how long the funding lasts. So in a lot of programs, we see either four or five years of funding, sometimes six, but that's been pretty rare in my research. Sure. So usually four or five. And when we start to universalize a, a particular uh, temporal um, framework, we're excluding bodies that operate outside of that normative temporality. Um, and so bodies that are sick, bodies that are disabled, um, bodies that move slower, um, people who have processing um, needs, people who have to take lower course loads, um, people who take longer to physically write. Um, so it changes everything. And so some things that, that my department has specifically has done is they've worked with me on time to degree and, and funding. Um, and that's been essential. So I, I've been able to lower the, the amount of courses I take each semester, um, and increase the, the, the time to degree funding, um, by a, a considerable amount of time to allow for some flexibility. Um, and so I think that's something that needs to be transferred across the discipline is for us to be able to be flexible in our choral arrangements, uh, because time is a, is a really crucial aspect of this, because if we don't address time, we're really not addressing the kind of accelerated pace that we're that we keep moving ourselves in. And that was a lot of rambling. So if I need to clarify, please let me know. Uh, well, I don't I don't know. If, uh, our listeners will need clarification. Um, I don't. But I do have tons of questions and I, I, I want to ask them all. I can't keep you here all day. Um, but part of me also doesn't necessarily know the right question to ask first, you know, um, right. as someone who doesn't have as an able-bodied person. Yeah, so I think I'll, something that I'm working on, I've, I've always had, you know, a ton of projects in my mind. And so one thing I've been working on this semester is to chill out. But I think th one of the pieces that I wrote over the summer, and so this summer was awful. Um, the summer w really was grueling for me. Um, okay. In what ways? Do you, if you mind sharing. No, no, I don't mind. I was really public about it on Twitter. I think the um, there was a gap, so I didn't get paid for two months. Um, so I was very fortunate that the, the College of Liberal Arts uh, basically opened an ad hoc position for me to get paid, and it, it saved me. So let me, let me clarify that. But I didn't get paid for two months. And so, you know, drained my savings account, did, couldn't afford to go and get some healthcare um, things that I needed done. Couldn't afford to go to, you know, the mental uh, health facility that I went to when I was in crisis. I went to the ER and got turned away because my student insurance doesn't cover ER visits there, at least. Um, what? Oh, yeah. I went to the ER in, in a mental health crisis and I gave them my health insurance and they said they accepted Aetna but not Aetna student health insurance. Um, so 
health insurance is a huge aspect of accessible rhetorical education because right. we we tend to think of graduate school as just this liminal space where we're always in transition, but lives are being lived in that space. And so how are we sustaining ourselves and helping sustain each other during that time? Because it, it gets passed over as, oh, well, this is a passing phase. Well, that's true, but we also need to survive during that time. Um, and so that's that was something that really impacted me this summer was was the um, the not just the health insurance, but also the the gap in pay um, was something that that really um, kind of took its toll. But it's working it working that through. Did I, I think I missed a uh, what was you, you didn't have a question? Um, I think. Oh, okay. So they're you're catching my of all over the place, but um, I did write a short piece over the summer um, on Medium that used uh, or that kind of talked with Christina Cedillo's um, 2018 article in composition forum um, called "What Does It Mean to Move: uh, Race, Disability, and Critical uh, Embodiment Pedagogy." Uh, and so that it's just a really short piece, but I, I kind of to take your statement that you're not sure what questions to ask. That is something that we need more of in the field right? Uh, for for able bodied researchers to say, I don't know what questions to ask. That is transformative because it lets it opens the space for disabled people to not only take up space, but to share space across bodily difference. And so just the simple fact that we can say, I don't know what questions to ask, um, I think is very important. And so that short little essay, um, and it's, it's just on Medium, it's on my own Medium page. Um, but the question I asked there was, how does it mean to move? And so looking at, <clears throat> what structures bodily movement, uh, whether that's physical space or time frames, uh, was something that I'm, I'm very concerned about. Um, so to take your question is to, is to say that I think that discipline really needs more of a self-reflexive mode and to say that, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff on empathy, um, but it's not empathy. Uh, it's, it's not being able to say I understand what you're going through. It's saying that I can't possibly understand what you're going through, but I still want to take up space with you. Right. Uh, and I think so. The the statement, I don't know what questions to ask. Uh, it's very profound. I, I don't want that to be uh, covered up uh, in the recording. When you were talking about your uh, relationship with TCU and the College of Liberal Arts, one of the words that came into my head, and I need you to correct me, uh, was the word triumph. And I wondered if that was an appropriate word to 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 relate to that situation. Um, it, I would say possibly. Okay. So what I and I'll explain because I think when it's it's a really is a double bind for disabled uh, scholars. So when when we when we are making progress or we when we do have some sort of um, um, 
I'll say breakthrough, but it's not a breakthrough. Um, okay. when, we reach a, when we reach a point to where we have at least made some sort of um, change, it's often conceived of as overcoming disability or overcoming. And so that's that's kind of something that a lot of disabled scholars and activists talk about is we've got to re- reject this um, notion of overcoming disability. So to say triumph, I think, is a little different than overcoming. But I think it that discourse of overcoming, I think, is still pretty pervasive. And it's not just it doesn't just um, impact disabled folks in RETCOMP. It really affects all of us um, because while we, you know, we've made it to a certain point in our careers, wherever that may be, to say that, you know, we somehow overcame, it really erases the the really shitty conditions that we went through to get to those places. Also, you know, just hearing you talk and thinking about it, uh, and also by, you know, eliminating or moving away from that idea of overcoming something kind of like deconstructs, you know, that binary of pass fail, you know, as well. Um, Absolutely. And I think um, we, another thing that um, kind of ties into what we've been talking about is assessment. Right. Uh, But when you say pass fail, it's assessment is vital. Um, And so a large part. So my dissertation for now, you know, I'm, I'm in my second year, so I'm, it's I'm, fluid. I'm, it's fluid. <laughs> yeah. So right now I'm working on some ideas um, toward an anti-ableist composition studies. Um, and one aspect of that is going to undoubtedly be assessment because there's a lot of great work. I'm thinking specifically of a in a way's work on um, anti-racist assessment. Right. Um, and so thinking about how labor is involved in our assessment practices. Um, but something is missing in those conversations and it's not, it's disability, but it's, it's specifically the notion of time. A lot of, there are a lot of instances in our assessment where we make assumptions around time. And I, and I'm not saying that I, th- I saw a tweet the other day. I don't know. Even, I don't even know who sent it. Um, it's really besides the point. But the other day I saw something that to the effect that was saying that that the the aspect of time was somehow missing from conversations on anti-racist assessment. And that's not necessarily true, but there's not a specific or explicit focus on what disabled scholars call crip time. And so being able to have assessment practices that don't end in the classroom. So a lot of times our assessment practices are only talking about our relationship as teachers with students. What we really need is to an anti-ableist approach to assessment across the board. So how are we assessing uh, or evaluating graduate instructors? How are we uh, approaching tenure portfolios? You know, because that's another instance of temporality that's that's been normalized. You know, we've right. got I don't know what it is if it's like three years or there's a time frame when. You get an assistant professorship and you have to go up for tenure. I don't know what that is, but it, it's a set in stone at various institutions. And so taking a look at things like that across the board. So it's not just in our you know, specific classrooms. It, it really assessment is something that we really need to take a hard look at 
across the board. How are we assessing graduate instructors, graduate assistants, graduate students in coursework? Because a lot of times the stuff that is new in the field that's addressing the problematics of assessment um, tend to not be uh, employed in seminar. Uh, and that's not a dig at anyone here locally. It's just, it's kind of, it's just a thing that seminars yeah. are just, seminar is just seminar, but right. the seminar is also a political space. Oh, isn't it ever? Very. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Cody, I think that um, I could talk to you all day, but I'm not going to because I'm sure that you are very busy. But before we quit talking, I do want to mention that you're now the reviews editor, editor for the Journal of Multimodal Rhetoric. Could you talk a little bit about how you fell into that position or were chosen for that position and the work that the journal is going to be doing? I'm sorry, and the work that you're going to be doing with the journal? Sure. Um, and so I'll kind of zoom out a little bit. Um, and so I've really um, worked quite a bit with Christina Cedillo, um, mm -hmm. who I deeply admire and, and someone I think, someone I think has, has, has and will continue to transform our field. And I think her work uh, with the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics cannot be uh, overstated or overemphasized. So I really got into the position through uh, professional relationship with Christina uh, and being able to work with Christina um, across a very, very different issues. But I'll also say that the work of, that I hope to kind of do uh, in conjunction with uh, Christina and Caitlin and some other folks involved with, with the journal is to really, as the reviews editor, something that I'm considering, uh, but can't say for sure because I'm, you know, I'm a part of a collective is right. to really, is to really kind of reassess the ways that we place, try to word this. So historically book reviews uh, and review essays have not been counted as substantial as articles. Right. Uh, and that's something that should change. Um, oh, okay. I don't have concrete plans or like ideas right now, but something that should change uh, because I think the book review is a genre that has tremendous potential, but is 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 a genre that I think in our assessment practices um, tends to be, you know, overlooked and devalued. But and so that's something that I, I hope to kind of if not directly through my work, at least tangentially um, or like on the periphery, um, address that in some aspect. Um, and but I also wanted to say that. And this is not related to the book review position, but it's something I did want to mention um, is that I'm working on uh, in terms of accessibility. There's a larger framework I'm working on in terms of what I'm calling um, accessibility as a constellating praxis. As a constellating praxis? Yes. So I'm working with a lot of Malia Powell's uh, work on constellation. Uh -huh. And so I'm looking specifically, and it ties a lot in with the, my relationship with the journal uh, and my work with Christina's work specifically, um, because it is a constellation. Um, you know, 
and I, I, I had to make sure that I had, you know, the names written down so I remember. But something that I want to emphasize is that we carry multitudes of relations with us into our work. Um, and I, I really want to work with Malia Powell's work on constellating as a mode of accessibility um, praxis because it, it allows us to, to constantly be reflexive about our relations and who we are responsible uh, with. So I'm thinking like specifically um, something that's come up in, in terms of the autistic community is, is gene editing or DNA editing. Um, and that's a long and stored issue, but to to take what's happening in, in the disability community around gene editing and work with, uh, you know, an indigenous scholar um, like Kim Tauber, uh-huh. who does a lot of work uh, in in the relationship between gene editing and indigenous sovereignty. That's one example of what I would say is a site of where we could see potentially um, some very fruitful uh, and important collaboration in terms of dis- both disability justice uh, and indigenous survivance. Um, and so I, I really think disability studies uh, and cultural rhetorics more broadly, uh, but specifically uh, native rhetoric and indigenous rhetorics is something that it's not just me. There are several of us that are working on it and, and kind of this effort to kind of push back against some of the um, the discourse around um, theories of networks. So we've got, you know, we've got Latour's actor network theory and, right. you know, and, and I think that, you know, I don't want to go on a rant about Latour. I don't want to do that because, you know, we don't have enough time, but I said earlier that we were going to have to have a two part episode. We will, we will. So but I, <laughs> but I'll say right now to keep it short is that I think the main issue is not necessarily Latour, but it's, it's, how it's been applied because, you know, I'll say, for instance, there's some recent scholarship um, and say recent, but, you know, over the past 10 years um, has tried to tie disability with um, actor network theory. And to leave, to keep this short, I'll say that one way we can say, you know, that's not the full story is to, to kind of go back and, and pay respect to indigenous um, rhetorics that, well before um, you know we've given these ideas terminologies were were being practiced um, for millennia. Yeah, Cody. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add? Anything at all? Um, let me make sure. I, I made some notes so I wouldn't forget. Let's see, and hopefully these ums can be edited out. I think they can. All ums are edited out. Yeah. Yay. Uh, so the only other thing that I would say, it's very important for me to kind of pay homage to people whose work that I, I'm working with. So I, I really do want sure. to, I want to make sure that I, I, I give credit. So that's what I want to do right now, if you don't mind. We're excited, okay. Paige, at the end of the podcast. Yay. Okay, awesome. So there's a lot of folks that, you know, whose work that I, I, I kind of read and, and really take seriously. So I'll start off just kind of a list, but uh, Mia Mingus uh, is a, a queer, disabled uh, Korean activist whose work on what she calls access intimacy uh, has been pretty vital. Um, and all these stuff that can't explain now, but I'll explain at some point. 
Al Swang, uh, who's the founder of Disability Visibility Project, uh, Belissa Thompson, uh, Liz Jackson. Um, those are all activists and, 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 and disabled folks whose work is very uh, vital to mine. Uh, in terms of the discipline, Anne-Marie Womack, Les Hutchinson, uh, Maria Novotny, uh, Eric Darnell Pritchard's uh, work on literacy normativity mm. has been vital to my work on anti-ableist uh, composition. Uh, Jay Doma, Jeff said, uh, Amy Morrison, um, and I could keep going on, but I wanted to make sure that I, that I emphasize that, that the work that I'm doing could not be possible without a huge web of folks like those that I've listed and Christina and a host of others whose labor has been vital to my scholarly and professional and personal life. Oh, such a kind thing for you to do. It really was. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I will let you go now and we will talk again soon. Talk to you later. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. and Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you for being here. Okay, rhetorical listeners, that's my chat with Cody Jackson. I hope you enjoyed that. Man, I can't wait to see the the things Cody does going forward. A smart man, for sure. And the work he's doing with accessibility and disability studies and rhetoric is extremely important. Not to mention the work he's doing on the ground, on site there at TCU, to work for better living and working conditions for graduate students. Uh, such important work and, and necessary work. And, and thank you so much to Cody for doing that work, fighting back against well, that institution and the, the way they pay their graduate students. Luckily here at ISU, we are union unionized or, or unionizing, unionized, unionizing. So uh, we'll see how that plays out going forward. But we're at the bargaining table and hopefully uh, Cody and his folks can get there too. So, hey, check this out, rhetorical listeners. We're trying to produce a, a, a series of episodes devoted to academics and their partners Framed around labor, where the two of you would come on and talk about labor and uh, how that's affected the things that you've done and the, the decisions that you've made. So, if you and your partner are into podcasts and want to talk about that, reach out to us, uh, thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. You, of course, can find us on Twitter, Facebook. Visit our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. All right, well, we'll look forward to hearing from you on that. And, um, gosh, semester's winding down, so I better go get busy. Until next time, be kind to one another, and always be listening rhetorically.